Welcome to the Behind the Goals podcast, the podcast about fans, for fans and by fans. Please welcome your hosts, Andrew Jenkin and Alan Russell. Hello and welcome to episode 27 of Behind the Goals. On this week's podcast, we have a former colleague of, of mine, uh, so Kevin Ryan joins us on the podcast, we used to work for Supporters Direct. Previous to that, he'd uh, done some work with Wimbledon and he also worked with Samaritans um, and he's got a, a sort of big background in history and PR. He's now set up a new company called Fan, Fan Insights uh, and he's, he's launched a new book called Little Book of Fan Insights, which you can check out on his website, which we discuss a lot. Um, and really, we're just discussing how things have changed in the last sort of um, 20 years of, of the kind of supporters direct movement, supporters trust movement, fan ownership, fan representation, fan engagement movement, whichever, whichever one of those multiple <laughs> terms you want to use um but uh it was a, a really interesting discussion yeah that's right um i mean kevin kevin's background is as a wimbledon supporter so um was involved in in, in trying to help help wimbledon through that difficult period in their history um and then after that joined supporters direct and it, it, it contrasts and the thing that struck me when he was talking about uh the the type of work they were doing back then is just how much things have changed it was uh it was you know, support at the at the beginning of the twenty first century was quite different uh, than it is today, and the types of campaigns they were doing, the the types of issues they're having to that they're having to deal with, and their casework uh, have 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 changed over those years, or or maybe more accurately, they've not changed, but they've moved elsewhere in football. Mm. So actually, as 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 the, the higher levels of English football have got themselves sorted out to some extent, uh, and things like financial fair play have come in and better relationships with, with, with the league have come in, actually the problems have been moved down uh, down the pyramid a little bit, mm. and actually these complex, difficult issues are, are, are still happening, uh, but they're happening at a much lower level. Um, so that was something I hadn't really reflected on before, that, that, that it changed quite so much in that in that period of time. Yeah, yeah. Similarly, I, I hadn't really appreciated that, appreciated that issue either. I wonder if that's the same here in Scotland. I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, but one thing that really struck me was, uh, and I was listening to the, the Nutmeg uh, podcast that, um, uh, that Ali came on to discuss with us a couple of weeks ago, that their own podcast, they were talking about fanzines and the history of fanzines. And I was listening to it actually with my dad on the way home uh, one day and they were talking about um, why fanzines have kind of died out in the modern era and then discussing a range of things, you know, like new media, uh, people wanting to have things on demand, um, podcasts, Twitter, social media. But actually um, it was Archie McGregor that had said, well, another thing was that fanzines were giving fans a voice Um, and actually to some extent they've kind of won in that respect because there has been the launch of supporters direct which was a really nice thing to hear somebody say uh, and give credence to the kind of impact that supporters direct have had in helping groups become Uh more organized and i really like what um kevin goes on to say in the in the podcast that you'll hear about supports direct almost becoming a bank of knowledge in terms of who and who you can and can't trust within the world of sport yeah spot the rogues (laughs) immediately because they've they've popped up somewhere else before yeah absolutely so hopefully you're enjoy our chat and uh, enjoy what Kevin has to say about his experiences. So Kev, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast today. Brilliant to have you here. Thank you for having me. Um, let's let's go back to the start and you worked for Supporters Direct for a number of years. Um, mm. and it'd be really good to to find out a bit more about what led you to, to working with the group at that time. What what kind of what are the steps that had connected you to, to, to being there? Um, and just get a sense of your, I suppose, your background, really, and, and what, what, yeah. what, what it was you were doing before Supporters Direct. I'll take well, my background um, as a, a in football is down to to, uh, to Wimbledon and the, the franchising of our league place off to Milton Keynes in 2002. <clears throat> I got involved in the campaign to try to stop it and then was involved in the reformation. I was sort of really all around the communications marketing. During the actual campaign I did things like I commissioned a poll from ICM Research mm. the uh, the polling company which kind of killed dead the idea that Wimbledon the, the place of Wimbledon didn't want a professional football club there um, in the end the reason we lost was basically because the others had more money than us mm. um, and we just didn't have the access to the legal assistance that the, well legal assistance <laughs> they had a vast budget and they needed to make it happen because two Norwegians had lost all their money well they'd lost a lot of money on um, Wimbledon Football Club as it was and uh, 
need to get out and this was the solution that was presented mm-hmm. to them. After a year being off, I worked as a researcher for the Samaritans um, and came back into football because Dave Boyle, who was then acting managing director, asked me to come and work for Supporters Direct because I had a skill set that they could do with, which was right. um, communications, first of all, but equally equally important was the was my ability to work with fans because obviously I'd done that um, as a Wimbledon fan and sort of getting people involved in a campaign and getting people engaged, organised, etc. So, yeah, and, and um, uh, after three months, it was a three-month um, temporary contract and we forgot to renew it in any way. In the end, basically, I, I stayed there for 11 and a half years and um, worked from reorganiser communications, was a caseworker, delivered a lot of casework around some of the biggest cases we did, worked for... Uh, worked work to establish SD Europe, worked for them for three years. Um, all that time I was still really doing communications as well and then came back in as, um, as I mean, ultimately I finished as um, head of um, policy and public relations um, and, and that's yeah. that's where I finished in 2015 and that's sort of okay. partly in which the direction that my career has gone is now public relations but no, I, I, obviously, you know, very focused on football. Yeah. Um, I'll explain a bit more about that in a bit. Okay. So, um, sorry, I'll just... One second. So we had another call in the office there, which was... Uh, I can't <laughs> do two things at once. Right, so... Yeah. <laughs> so you started working with Supporters Direct back in 2004. Four, uh, and and you left in two thousand fifteen. So over that over that space of time, what were kind of some of the um, immediate problems you were sort of realizing within football, and what were the kind of common things that were cropping up in terms of the casework for supporters direct? Depended when you're talking about, because at the start, you know, and I, although I dipped in and out of Scottish football, English football was obviously my main area of work, at least for the first five or six years, till I joined SD, working SD Europe. But it was in those in the early sort of part of that time because SD was only four years old at that point when I started. Um, that was about coping with the, the last vestiges, if you like, of um, of the mess that was created by the collapse of ITV Digital because football league clubs had signed this massive contract with what was essentially an experimental broadcaster. It was a new platform, free. It was what it was the same platform that now is is now Freeview. Um, it was using digital. Did, it was um, it was doing set-top boxes and broadcasting to, through through your aerial rather than cable or or satellite. Now we know that's Freeview, and they've kind of flipped the model and they built it from the bottom up. So now you know mm-hmm. they've done all this free stuff, and now you can buy things in. So it was a very difficult model to try to make work. And football couldn't. They thought, well, if Rupert Murdoch made Sky work, uh, a Sky big on football, and we can do that with ITV Digital. That didn't work. Clubs fell to pieces because they mortgaged themselves against it all. Um, uh, the only club that didn't was Brighton because they'd, you know, for all sorts of reasons that they had, they had some very clever owners who, who worked in the media industry as well. So we were kind of cleaning up some of the mess of that. Um, and also a lot of the common problems that you had from essentially a game that when I started in uh, as a, well, in fact, when Wimbledon Football Club was, was franchised off to Milton Keynes, I think there was one rule and I think it was almost literally a clause what literally one number rule um, concerning finances which was to do with the payment of um, dues to another club there was Mm, nothing in there about financial probity scrutiny nothing Um, there was nothing about until 2004 there was nothing about whether a club was permitted to move for example which is now although it's not Mm. forbidden it's uh, there's a set of rules that were brought in about rather later than they should have been obviously but they were brought in after the franchising happened and to try to stop it happening again um, and that's now in common across the leagues actually in England the <clears throat> as things went on what you see what I saw was that the most um, nefarious questionable owners went further and further down the pyramid so what where it started that you'd have people you did have people essentially stripping out football clubs for quite some years post 19 about the 1970s really the kind of as as society sort of changed a lot i saw this pattern where where you know i could see it 
um, in the clubs that I was working with and the fans I was working with, that clubs would then sort of fall into various different groups of people's hands, various individuals. And very often what they were doing was borrowing against the ground. I mean, a Wimbledon Football Club was the prime example. It was just so many... It mirrors... As a club, for some reason, Wimbledon seems to mirror all of these eras. <laughs> I don't know why, yeah. but it just does, if you look back at it. And you know, those clubs like Swansea, just before I started off, were essentially in the hands of a bloke who had nothing to do with it. don't know what he was doing there. Exeter, Michael Jackson turning up on the pitch, owned by... Um, Russell and Lewis, in fact, owned Swansea. There were these names you knew about, um, and they were like they were almost, um, you know, it was almost like a, a, a sort of <laughs> they were tales we all told ourselves. Mm -hmm. we, t we all told each other, "Be careful of that one." And what Supporters Direct was acting as was essentially a central repository of all these things that would happen. And we, mm. someone would phone us up and go, "You heard of this bloke?" Because it was always a bloke. It was very rare <laughs> you find me doing these things. Um, you'd find some, you know, they go, have you heard of this bloke? Um, no, but hang on a minute, let me phone blah, blah, and you'd speak to someone, then they'd come back and boom, you'd find out that that, that, that person had been a shareholder in this or been involved mm. there or done this at this club and don't, you know, if, if you have to meet with this person, be careful. What really started to change was, um, was Lord Marwinnie, <clears throat> um, when he became chairman in 2004, 2005, he just completely started to change how the league acted, uh, the football league, that is. And he made it more engaged with his stakeholders. He created, to be honest, he actually pursued the idea that it had stakeholders. And before, I think mm -hmm. the league struggled with that idea. Yeah. And they brought in a terrific fella um, called Gavin McGore, who's now at Hanover Com Communications, a massive communications company in London. But he was a brilliant stakeholder manager who just used to go and talk to all the clubs and make sure he knew, understood what he was, you know, the eyes and ears. But, you know, Marwinnie managed to trade off with the clubs and he managed to get them in a position where he could get them a bit more money, get, get them a bit more, you know, the broadcast income was beginning to rise again, nowhere near the, the millions of pounds that were committed by to be digital that the clubs never really saw. Um, and that change, you know, he, so he made that change and brought in more regulation. It wasn't always what we wanted, but it was a lot better. And he would speak to us a lot and engage us a lot, uh, support us direct, that is. Mm. Um, and that changed the nature of it. And um, it pushed a lot of that real sort of what you might, you know, people, I mean, all, I mean, it was almost like there were grave diggers at times at clubs where they'd be turning up just trying to find what they could get. And they wouldn't care what it was. Yeah. Um, and, and they're trying, you know, it, the, the, if you like, the sort of, I suppose the epitome of that would be Wrexham, where <clears throat> um, Andrew Hamilton turned up with Mark Gutterman, <clears throat> who had already done some stuff at Chester, which, <laughs> which Chester <laughs> weren't too fond about. Mm -hmm. um, he turned up and took control of the ground. The trust was one of my first cases. Um, the trust managed in the end working with the administrator because the club went into administration to get the ground back because he had illegally taken it. Um, and that was the sort of, that was almost the high or the low water market. Right? That was almost the beginning. That, well, no, that was the beginning of the end. Those sorts of cases began to be the last ones, but we saw them in non-league more. Um, and the conference, the National League as they are now, step, you know, tier five of English football, um, has done a lot of good stuff as well so it's pushed it further down and you've found they're beginning to turn up at six and seven and eight on in the pyramid and they're harder to deal with is and it? then of course sd moving out into europe but i mean really I, i'll touch on that in a minute if you want but but english football it was you saw the effect of fans organizing saying there's a line you can't go over we're going to stop you if you do it we'll take control if we have to um but actually, the Football League particularly responding and going, we recognise we have a duty here and we've not been... I think by their mission, I think by their actions, they were admitting this hasn't been good enough. And, and, and Lord Marwinnie deserves enormous credit, which I never thought I would have been saying um, when I joined Supporters Rep, but it's true. He did some tremendous things and that just changed the dynamics. It meant and it was more about engagement and less about firefighting and less about keeping an eye out for the for the frankly for some of the dodgy people because there were some dodgy people the dodgy people coming in the door and trying to fool you into thinking they were going to do amazing things because they never did
It's remarkable just to think, just in, in, a, in a relatively short, short space of time, just how, how, how much things have changed. Do you think in retrospect, and I know this is your own club, so it may be difficult to distance yourself from it, um, but in retrospect, was the fact that such a high-profile club went through that, did that really get people's attention, have them paying attention, and, and was, was that for the greater good, or is it too difficult to see that, <laughs> see it that way? Um. No, I mean, if there's, I suppose if there's one thing I've able to, I've been able to have over the years is perspective because I've worked in it and not just did, I didn't just do the Wimbledon stuff. So, um, because I became so involved in, in, in all sorts of areas and the governance of the game and everything. Yeah, of course it did. It set, I mean, what it did is it showed, and every, I mean, to be honest with you, in a sense, every time Wimbledon achieved something, whether that's returning to the league or getting to the league mm. one on a ludicrously low budget, <laughs> um, you know, or, or, or getting back to Plough Lane as, we're, as the club is now poised to do. With, you know, the, the site's being cleared, the stadium's going to be built. We're going to be back there, in, you know, 28 years after we were, well, 20, yeah, about 28 years after we were removed by our owner, Sam Aram. That gives everyone, people sit up and take notice and they go, so, who, so, so who's funding that then? Well, we are. Um, yeah, the fans are. And it's not even that it, that it encourages everyone to, to do fan ownership. It encourages everyone to realise that, that these clubs are not, they're not like. Um, do you remember the Wizard? Of, have you seen the Wizard of Oz? Yes. Yeah. It's the best example I can ever come up with, and I've done this with chief executives of big football clubs and, and ordinary match-going fans. And I said the thing about football, and they all see the point. The thing about football is, is there are lots of people in the game who like to think what they are is that scene in the Wizard of Oz when you've got the big curtain, you've got that <laughs> booming voice coming out, and the smoke coming out the top, and then you pull the curtain back as a little bloke yeah. um, shouting through a. A loud hailer and you know pulling a chain and smokes all that and it is like football so what i like to think has happened is, is the veil has been lifted somewhat mm. so that's really been the effect but it's not just been the effect of wimbledon there's been a multiplicity and you get a role you know it it it, it just starts to it's hard to explain when you spend your life organizing or spend your time organizing groups there's a what there's a tipping point that you notice or there are stages of development that you notice and you look at it and go, yeah, that's changed. And it really came to that point probably in about 2009, 10, I would say. Mm -hmm. And people really started going, oh, okay. And then that's when I think really it became more about fan engagement than, as I say, firefighting per se, although that was still very important and there were areas where that matters an awful lot still. And I said further down, that's often the case. Mm. But you started to see the, the bigger groups responding. So you'd had the Man United supporters trust. Yeah, FC United had broken away from that, from, from the Man United fans. Before. But actually, Man United fans, they started to believe they could achieve something. And, and Spirit of Shankly were probably, to this day, and I've done a project for them since I've been working on my own about, about their fan engagement at Liverpool and did it in parallel with some work that Liverpool were doing with um, one of the big research companies. And when they when they started to organise and not in just some, you know, they weren't just shouting, they were, they were being pragmatists, actually. They were sitting down at the table with people and they were at the club and they were talking through issues and they were trying to get to the, you know, they were trying to get to agreement on things. When they started doing that, that's when it all really started to shift and you started to go, oh, okay, well, no, this actually is about those relationships now. It's more about how you maintain them and you grow them, how people learn to respect them and how the change comes about. And how the culture changes in the game, because it's a big problem. Everyone, I think, the thing that I've identified, I think, is that I think most people would say their clubs need good, need to understand how to engage better with their fans and not just from the sort of mm. better products, consultation on, you know, whether you want to sit here or sit there. But actually, those maintenance, maintenance of those relationships, I think most people would say clubs need to know how to do that, but they don't always realise it. Mm. They don't always want it. And that's that's the tough bit. And that's tough for consultants like me, and it's tough for well, groups like SD Scotland or supporters directs in England or SD Europe, because you're, you're having to... There is still a prevailing view that the game isn't... That it's OK, things are all right, and actually... The noise you get from fans when they complain about stuff, well, that's just the dynamic, isn't it? No, no, I don't think it has to be, actually. Because mm. I've learned that that's not... It's usually a drop ball somewhere or someone's taken their eye off things. And and so there's a long way to go. But, yeah, undoubtedly, in the very long way, I like to answer questions like that. 
things have shifted yeah yeah i was i mean even even here in scotland even since i started working at supporters direct which is was at a time that you were you were obviously at supports direct in england it feels like things have shifted so you know at at the very start when i started working here we had to really try and sell the kind of model of fan ownership because there weren't a huge amount of successful examples in here you you'll know as well as i do and, and as alan will as well the kind of the major arguments again fan ownership it doesn't work at the top level it only works for little clubs well actually mm. you know in the in the five years since i've been here you've now got almost two spfl premiership teams that are fan owned so it feels like the journey has come such a long way even so, in such a short period of time so even since the early noughties it feels like that that progress in those kind of 18 years has been incredible Oh, well, goodness. I mean, it, 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 to be honest, if with all of the challenges it faced as a whole, Supporters Direct and, you know, in, including all its various bits that are now independent, you know, obviously the two other parts that made up SD are now independent yourselves and, and Europe. <clears throat> the stuff it's had to come through sometimes, when I got there, it was in a funding crisis. Mm. Um, for whatever reason, its funding wasn't being renewed. Um someone decided that they wanted to make life difficult for the organization i for the life of me i can't i don't know why i know what i know who it was <laughs> I, I just it looked like game plan to me and the fact that the organization even now in england is still refusing to 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 walk away quietly and actually is is relevant and is as relevant as ever been and that the work in scotland is is coming on nice and see you've opened up your network into individual membership and stuff like that to create mm-hmm. more support. Yep. A sort of a more of a buffer, if you like. Yep. Um, nice, um, nice plug and, for that, uh, by the way. Thanks, Kevin. <laughs> so, again, <laughs> that was a nice plug for our new membership structure well, as well. Yeah, on like, on like patreon.com. SD Europe's still out there growing what it does. I mean, the thing, the thing, the truth is, is that the, yeah. It was such a low, in, you know, in English football, and I think equally in Scottish, because I think we were in similar places. There was just a bit more money. It was, a, it was more money at the top, but let's be honest, they were in similar states because they're similar types of games mm. in that respect. You know, similar types of problems that they, they were dealing with. Um, it's, a, it's a testament to the strength of the idea, and that it wasn't just about. You see, the thing that and the thing that starts to think frustrate me, and I tried to do as much about this as I could. Um, uh, and I think I did all right before the end. That I started to go back and say, look, what was what was it we, we what was it this organisation was set up to do? Because yeah, fan ownership is really important, and ideologically, it was a preference for ownership. I'd always put my club being fan owned. I think it's a fantastic way of owning it. I think if you get it right, I think it has kinks and problems, but you know, at least you can change your ownership. You can change the people you control your club a lot more easily than a privately owned football club. But the strength of Brian's idea, Brian Lomax's idea was that it was it was about creating that relationship between fans and their clubs at any club and this should be possible anywhere and yeah you did have to try to root it with ownership but you had to always be looking to have a good mature honest relationship with each other and that the reason that it's there now in it's all its forms and that it's now working it works in scotland that it's now working all over europe and it's still there in england the reason is because the idea was strong and it was right mm-hmm. And it and because it wasn't just about one thing, and because it was about um, the idea that you can have these good grown-up relationships, and and the only problem perhaps now is that you have to constantly, you know, I find this as a consultant is you have to constantly be saying to people, look, you do realise this fan engagement stuff isn't about pressing some buttons and tweeting someone, hmm. um, and actually it's about it's about that day-to-day relationship. It's you know touching on what I do my my professional life. You know, as a public relations practitioner, um, it's about it's about engaging your stakeholders. That actually means something. It's not just um, you know, it's not just a phrase. But it's the strength. Of the, it's a testament to the strength of the idea that, that things are as they are. It's it's such a strong idea. It doesn't matter what you throw at it, it stands up because the we we understand the idea of what these clubs are meant to be. So so these things provide a model for it and the, and and models for it, and and they work. So why not use them? I think one of the things that really strikes me, you, you talked there about a supporter engagement and people people thinking it's a, a button that you can press uh, and it's, yeah. it's something that's, that's easy to do. You know, one of the things mm. that kind of emerges from, from what you've been talking about so far and some of the work that you've done and that, that I've seen is this idea of authentic fan engagement. Yeah. Um, so anybody can engage, but to do it authentically, to actually yeah. to mean something and to have yeah. those grown-up conversations that you just talked about yeah. there, uh, that's actually a, that's a harder thing to do, but it's, yeah. a, it's a lot more value in that. And actually, 
yeah. being, being able to be be critical friends or or, or, or just critical of, of, of ideas and and really confront the issues as as they are and, and not not just do it as a bit of window dressing yeah no that's right you you know you're right about that it's um I mean, I I can't stand the word authentic. I spent too many so many years living in London, and authentic <laughs> became a sort of an inauthentic word. So when before I started using that, I hesitated. Right. But that's what people would un, people would understand it when I say that, like you do. <clears throat> and one of the things that inspired me to set up Fan Insights, as it is, um, and give it, you know, do, do what I've done is, I was at a conference and not that long ago, and. Um, as the experts on fan engagement got up, in this case, it was Nevo Mahoney from SD Europe and um, um, Mark Bradley from the Fan Experience Company, and two different sides of the same coin. You know, everyone understands what SD Europe does, and Mark comes at what he does from a perspective where well, you need to treat people properly when they're in the ground. You need, you know, we know that you know it's a, it's, a, it's a more of a customer experience, but still, it's one part of that relationship issue. You know, that issue of fan engagement. Um, you know, what's the experience actually like? How am I feeling being treated? What am I getting for what I'm paying? Because I'm a customer as well as a stakeholder. I, you know, I need to understand what I am. I'm a special type of customer. And all the, after, after the room walked out, mm. and I was talking to Mark afterwards in a, in a cab on the way to the airport. And I said, so, you know, and we were talking through this, and I said, just this, you know, I mean, I've found fan, fan engagement conferences and events and, you know, tomes books magazines written on it they all seem to be going on about tech all the time and i, I said i get a little bit frustrated with that because that's a delivery mechanism that's not mm -hmm. a relationship yeah. you went well yeah this is the problem that we face so i mean setting up fan insights isn't going to solve the problem because i'm i'm a minuscule blot on the landscape <laughs> the <laughs> dot on it all compared to everything else but but I'm tr this is my effort to try to say to people look if you want to understand this stuff then by all means, use all sorts of mechanisms to deliver your work because they're channels that you communicate through. But if you went home and sat next to your partner, your other half, whatever, and all you did was type into a you know, some form of device in order to communicate with him or her, where would your relationship be? It'd be down, down the swanee, wouldn't it? It wouldn't be working. So, you know, relationships are not based around the mechanism you use. They're, they're, they're based around the quality of the relationship, the honesty. Yeah. And actually... The, the club being able to say stuff to the fans because I think sometimes there's a bit of an immaturity from some supporters about how they think these relationships work and I and I do get frustrated with the lack of understanding and you can't completely cancel it out, it'll always be there but a complete, will, almost will, at times willful lack of, un, lack of understanding about football that isn't helped sometimes by football itself and clubs not being very open but yeah. I do think sometimes fans just need to be a little bit more understanding. Mm. And yeah, scream and shout and everything, I get that. But they need to think a little bit more sometimes before they engage their mouth. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and I'm being completely honest with you, I do think that is a problem. But it's a balance, you know, there needs to be some form of balance there. And I'm, I'm not sure, we're not we're not there yet. And we're, and we're certainly not going to get it delivered by tweeting each other all the time. <laughs> it's going to have to be done through, com through conversations. And the best... This is the one other bit. I, I, do, I mean, I did my diploma in public relations last year. I finished it last year. Uh, I met Paul Barber. I met Alistair McIntosh. So Paul works for Brighton. Alistair works for Fulham. Um, uh, Mark Catlin at Portsmouth. Um, Eric Samuelson at Wimbledon. Lots of other people. You know, what was really common, what was in common with all of those people, all the best practitioners, this guy called Lee Strafford, who used to be chairman of Sheffield Wednesday when things were really bad. Terrible, terrible, terrible. Every single one of them, they, they're open doors. That's how they act. Mm. <clears throat> and as far as they're concerned, anyone can contact them. Mm. And and that doesn't solve everything, but there's 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 one of your tricks. The people who are the best practitioners in this stuff, when it comes to fan engagement, they get the idea or they get the fact that these are relationships and you need to be open to people. There you go. And mm. it works. Mm, it, yeah. Every one of those works, or, or did in the case of Lee. Mm, yeah. So, you know, there's a lot we can learn from some, some practitioners in clubs out there, but I just don't think that's always spread out well enough and people ever get to hear about that. Yeah. So so after, so after you mentioned their fan insights. It might just be worth, uh, t I suppose, giving it a plug or touching upon what, what it is that uh, fan insights does. We've got your um, your book here, your little book of fan, insights, book of fan insights, which, which like could it? have been, uh, uh, which could have been, we've got a little masterclass series that we kind of um, sporadically do on different topics. But this, this could have been a masterclass about in engaging with fans. So perhaps you could just run us through what fan insights is. Yeah. 
Of course. Um, well, I mean, basically, it's it is what I said. You know, it's a it's a consultancy specialising in um, advising on on uh, fan engagement on um, on the actual relationship between clubs and fans and. It will be, you know, it's about it is about establishing the right mechanisms to govern that relationship and to run it. No, that might vary from having written agreements to just having a better a better uh, approach to social media, for example. Um, but that, you know, that's it, the point of this is that it work. You, you've got to work out what works at each club because every single club has got some different tweaks you need to make about it. There's lots of common threads, but um, and. I come from a perspective because because my perspective is from a public relations perspective, and a lot of people think of public relations as being effectively media media relations. Modern public relations practice is all about stakeholders in one part, massive massively about stakeholders, and about you managing your relationship and having what they call don't you know everyone mustn't switch off and fall asleep now two way symmetrical relationships where you're actually prepared to move position and have discussions and you and you move position. And that dialogue means, you know, these structured dialogue and these two-way symmetrical dialogic you know, relationships based on conversation, they mean that you are actually going to have to be open about it. And what, that's really where I come from. Um, I don't come from a, a land of milk and honey where it all, um, everything suddenly gets better. Because even at Fan and Wimbledon, we have our problems, or there are there are problems there. There are problems at every single football club when it comes to communication. You can't solve it all. Everything doesn't have a communication solution. But there is a hell of a lot of stuff that gets done that could benefit from the approach that I have because it's about considering the stakeholders at the centre of everything you're doing. And it, I suppose because you know everything, all the language, certainly in English football, and I suspect it's probably not dissimilar in Scotland. All the language points to this desire for for structured dialogue, and then when you dig, you scratch the you know scratch beneath the surface, and I don't think they know what to do. I think they get stuck. I think clubs mm-hmm. struggle with it, mm-hmm. um, and I think equally as well, or well, not equally, but on the other side, I think fans and fan organisations struggle with it mm-hmm. because of it can be resource based, very often resource based in my experience when it comes to supporters trust specifically, because they're voluntary volunteer groups. It can come down to practice because out there in the arena, the practice is all as I as I sort of said earlier. A lot of it really is well, most of it really points to the idea of tech, because you're getting it driven over from the states, and the states is all about the customer relationship and and you know ups, upselling. Always, you know, it's about making money out of it. How do you how do you do this stuff to make money? Um, it's a much more product based kind of approach. So you know, trying to get people to see uh, to approach this issue from from the reality of of where we all understand what we all understand clubs to be what they are as real institutions relationship with fans so that's really where it comes from and and what i'm aiming to do and with the little back free little bank of book of fan, book of fan insights um i just it's a good little thing there i just thought that that would help people to understand the perspectives that i come from on this stuff because it is all about there's lots of stuff about stakeholders in there yeah. Um, and get people to understand that because it's not easy to have a relationship. You know, relationships are not simple. Yeah, and, I, and football, you know, football club relationships are, are quite complex. Yeah, and that that complexity. What one of the things I really like about your book is that it breaks that down, that complexity down into here's some really important principles to keep in mind. Yeah. And actually, doing something about it, living that out, maybe not quite as simple as that, but at least they're memorable. Um, and uh, yeah. you know, you know the, the one one that really jumped out to me when I was looking through the book was that uh, not all supporter groups are the same, and the number yeah. of t- number of times I've been asked. Why? Why we don't just merge with other supporters groups at our club, um, yeah. and and, it's, it's, and it, those questions have been asked by our football club itself, and because yes. it would be a lot more convenient for them to engage with one group, um, mm. but actually it, it it completely yeah misses out any understanding of what what each of those groups are for and yeah. what's important to them uh, and what their priorities are. And to actually do the do to do the more complex thing of really engage authentically mm. Um, mm. and to understand all of those groups and and all, all the differences between them that takes a lot of time and effort. Um, yeah, and it's but it's, it, wor- it's it's very worth it. From it's very worth it. That's the other thing is it's it's that initial getting to the point where you're where you're not so scared to do it. Because yeah. what I found once 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 officials senior and i'm talking about really senior officials here because it has to be set from the top the ones they do it 
um, and when they do it, it's successful. It works. That's right. And 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 you will always get, you know, you will always get those people who will just spend all their time wanting to be right. And it doesn't yeah. matter what you say. <laughs> you can see you can see what you can see these people online, you know. But we've always known they exist. Yeah. If we're being cruel, we might call them the pub bore, but those people exist. <laughs> and it, allow, it allows you to filter those people out. Because it is important, again, you know, I mean, coming back to this point, that um, it's easy to just sort of browbeat the club and say, just engage with us better. But I think yeah. groups can do better at helping to filter that for them. But it yeah. needs to be, you know, clubs, you, you know, you can... You can you can say that, but clubs do need to be willing to actually make the move as well. And I think this is a, in the Brick Charles particularly, I think it's a bit of a problem. Uh-huh. Um, but you see that, you know, I, I saw that in Belgian football, I saw it in Spanish football. It's about power relationships a lot of the time, That's right. um, and it's about time, and it's about ability, it's about resources. Quite often, clubs simply don't have the money mm-hmm. because they're gearing towards, you know, the, the club. Everything is geared towards paying a wage bill. Yeah. Um, but if people can see that actually, if you find ways to generate the cash better um, and more efficient ways and ways that make people happy, you might find you generate more. Yeah. <laughs> and it makes yeah. your life easier. Yeah. You save money because you're not having to fight fires. Because a lot of this does come, does express itself in essentially crisis public relations, which is what I used to do a lot of, mm-hmm. you know, managing mm-hmm. a crisis. Do this properly and this stuff doesn't cost you in the way it used to because you're not having to run and fight the fires all the time and I can see that in the practice I've seen and the best people I've spoken to the stuff I've done it works it yeah. really works I think I think the other thing that strikes me is that you, you when you talk about two-way dialogue this isn't something this isn't just something that clubs need to do a better job of this is a, something that the supporters need to do a better job of as yeah. well and take any of those principles you know flip them on their head and say okay so that applies to supporters as well um, yeah. so supporters need to understand in a little bit more depth and a bit more richness the sort of the complexity of the issues at the club or the people at their club uh, what is it that makes them tick um, what is it that they that they would say yes to what it, what is it they would absolutely say no to you know what are the points of of leverage or common ground and, and yeah. what are the areas where where you need to work a little bit harder to try and find find a way through it um, that's right the one 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 thing i wanted to ask you about kevin was actually at your own club wimbledon so i suppose you know, one of the the best benefits of actually proper engagement with supporters can be, at, you know, an increase in um, uh, profit. Actually, um, I remember reading an article a couple of years ago. Correct me if I'm wrong, though, but it was a it was a survey amongst Wimbledon fans about ticket pricing, and mm. the survey actually asked fans, okay, look, explaining the situation and saying we're going up a division for us to be competitive, <coughs> we're going to have to charge more on our ticket prices, and actually explaining mm. that situation to fans and then surveying their views on it, and actually having mm. a, a positive result in that fans were happy to pay more for season tickets if they meant they could have a more mm. uh, competitive team on the pitch so actually going through that process and engaging fans in, in the right way can lead to you know better outcomes for everyone yeah it can actually i mean as far as Wimbledon goes i think even they would admit there's some work to do when it comes to the actual day-to-day engagement um because just having the model doesn't mean it works but mm. the relationship i suppose because the relation because the, the, the one thing they do do well there actually i think which has come certainly from the the sort of club executive perspective um i mean particular for, to be honest particular credit goes to eric the chief executive for this is he likes to explain stuff mm. um he doesn't like to assume people understand um and um and that's one of the things he's always done a lot of uh, we've t- we chatted about it from time to time about you know, well, I'll explain an issue in the programme. It might be a regulatory issue that, that affects something in, in the game, um, but it might be something like that. And, um, you know, and the trust as well, obviously, will be involved in those sorts of things. But I think it culturally tends to have come from Eric, and I think that's really important, and, 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 it, and it's worked. So I don't know. Uh, um, uh, and I, I, the, 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 I suppose the issue I want to kind of draw out of that is, is about consultation, you see, because I think that it's really good that fans get surveyed or they get asked their views. I think the problem can be that, that, that clubs have got stuck in this rut of surveying all the time. And when you've done, I mean, one of my parts of my background is, is that, I, that I was a researcher on, in a couple of organisations, in a local authority level and, a, and at the Samaritans, where I was doing sort of statistical and policy research. <coughs> and having done now two ICM 
um, opinion polls, one one with the Wimbledon campaign and one for Supporters Direct in 2014, um, which you can still find evidence of actually online. The Guardian broke the story. But it's about the appropriateness of the research you're undertaking. What's the, what, are you try, what are you trying to answer here? Mm. Um, now, if you take, for example, Leeds... Um, announcement that when they came out came up with that new new brand new badge new crest mm. whatever you want to call it <laughs> that was so ridiculed um they said that they'd engaged i think it was with sixty thousand people there's a term there that you need to kind of drill down into how did you engage with them did you have did, did you just at some point ask them a question or get some form of feedback through x y or z platform was it online um, I suspect they didn't do 60,000 proper conversations <laughs> with people where they actually sat down for, you know, the equivalent of five or ten minutes with each one and spoke to them. I'm not saying that you have to do that all the time, but one of the benefits of that is you get a richness of what things really mean to people. And I did, uh, not as a uh, not as a piece of voluntary, but as an actual piece of consultancy work, I did with um, someone who was leading a, a review of communications for the football club for Wim for AFC Wimbledon last year, I did some focus groups for them. And they were proper you know, they were proper um focus groups. And the th- if I compare that with say the Sam Allardyce survey, now now infamous at Everton, mm. where I get what they're trying to I get what they're trying to find out. And you know what? I don't think managers should be sacrosanct. Um I'm actually starting a podcast on my own and one of the things I'm going to talk about not going to be competing with yours though <laughs> um, uh, is is i'm looking i'm having a look at paul tisdale and his departure of Exeter city where the fans voted for him to to have his contract not renewed his rolling two-year contract because enough of them were worried about the financial implications and i'm not talking about particularly specifically about you know numbers voting in elections or in in motions and this kind of stuff although it's touching on it but sort of saying well that managers are not people you shouldn't be able to to criticize or talk about and you've got to think about their role in a club but that there are times like the sam allardyce issue where if you want to find that stuff out then have a conversation about it but don't ask a question like how how highly do you rate our management because you know last season at afc wimbledon for whatever reason there was a significant group well a, a, a minority of people who had decided that the manager was no longer of any use yet you speak to people around the game as i do and he's one of the most highly rated young managers there is who works on very little mm. but fans get become impatient yeah. so don't ask yeah. them a question that's going to get them get you the answer you'll get in a pub on a, on a friday night <laughs> after a week at work get the answer that's the get the real answer from them what are the frustrations behind it because you know they're you start to dig around and yeah, some people will just give you a straight answer, but you start to dig around, you start to find out what people really think and understand their hopes, their fears. And there was some terrific stuff, material from that, uh, those focus groups. And people came back with things that weren't expected, less by me, because I hadn't really been involved in setting up the whole communication strategy and the expectations within the f- football club. I, I know them slightly less than, than the guy who ran the project. Um, but it gave us a real richness of understanding, and I, I, I love that stuff because I think it gives you surprises, and it and it and it and it lessens the, it lessens the impact of of criticism. It it doesn't mean you don't get criticised. It just means that the criticism has context to it, you know. And if you say, do you like something X, you know, yes or no, it's it's much harder to to answer the question, um, even if you ask an open question in a survey where someone can fill the answer in which is a lot more complicated you still don't get the richness of the conversation so mm-hmm. you've got to come back to the point you've got to, you've got to think about how you how's your consultation happening as well because that's a really important part of it and i want to see more good quality conversations going on between clubs and because i think it lessens a lot of the problems mm. um even if you need to do something unpopular like a season ticket rise or price rise if you have the conversation properly and I was going to say, actually, no, there was one other example that just popped into my head was Bristol City have got um, have got a, 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 a massive fan panel kind of thing. They, mm. they ran a, it's called it's called Fan. It's called um, was it Fan Advisory Network, I think, and it's got the supporters mm. trust on it. And there are a lovely bunch of people there, not not the critical type. Uh, they suddenly, at the last minute, the club put the prices uh, removed a category of pricing, did a couple of other things that were really you know sort of 
made people sort of stop and go, what are you doing that for? And the Trust were putting out pretty critical pieces on the football club, and it was very avoidable. Mm. Um, I don't know why they did it, but they could have avoided it by actually having these conversations and, mm. and making sure they paid attention to what had come back. But, you know, yeah. there you go. It's a cultural shift that's needed yeah. here, I think. Well, well, one of the questions I had uh, for you was... Out of your little book of uh, little book of insights, what's your favourite one? What's the one that you, could, you would what would you offer to somebody if you were going to give them? Obviously, this is all free, but um, if you if you if you were meeting with a club and you could give them one little bit, you know, tidbit to take away as a pro bono piece of work. Well, you, na- naturally, I have it open in front of me, and I've been thinking about this for weeks. Um, just opening it up. What would I say? Um, question i mean in the in the the i mean there's so i'm bound to say this is so much there that's good advice but a lot of this is picked up from other people this isn't just you know it isn't all from the mind of kev a lot of this comes from 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 some of the great professionals i've Mm. i've interviewed work with etc and you know i hope to work with and interview more um but i suppose um, do you know, actually, the thing that I think, that I, and it will be two things, because this is the human stuff. I would, to any club, I would say, go and speak to these people. Go and speak to, um, uh, in English football at least. In fact, in Scottish football, I think the guy at Motherwell sounded particularly impressive. Is he, is he the guy who was the fan? Is it Motherwell? They were in the Scottish Cup final this year. Was it Motherwell that yeah, were there? Yeah, it was, was Motherwell it that there? were there. Yeah. Motherwell. Yeah. Go and speak to these people. Right? If you work in the game, you've got no excuse. And those people in English football leagues were Andy Ambler, who's at the FA, Paul Barber at Brighton, Mark Catlin at Portsmouth, Steve Kavanagh at Millwall, Alison McIntosh at Fulham, Jonathan Waite, who's the head of support services at Spurs, who was also a trust activist, actually, back in the day. But terrific. All good at what they do. I'd add to that list... Um, um, also, um, I've got a terrible head for names, but the um, and I only met him last week, so I should really <laughs> punch myself, uh, p- p- uh, slap myself for this. Um, Tom Gorringe, who's the commercial director of Bristol Rovers, who worked at Brighton, Portsmouth, and and, and Cardiff, and is just brilliant at what he does. He worked under Paul Barber at Brighton, so go and speak to people like that. Mm. Search them out, speak to them, find out what they do well, um, uh, and and learn from them and. Go and get insights from your fans. So there's the other bit where I talk about, I drag out some quotes from Brian, who sadly, you know, sadly passed away about two, two and a half years ago now. Um, but there's there's some quotes there from Brian, um, Duncan Drasdo from Man United, Malcolm from the the, ch- the chairman chair of the Football Supporters Federation, and Jay um, Jay McKenna, who's the chair of Spirit of Shankly. Go and listen to these. Find out what they think. Um, at there's one club I've been speaking to recently and I'm hoping to do, I'm not going to say they are, but I'm hoping to do some work with them at some point in the not too distant future. And one of the things that the person I met with, who's a senior manager in the club said was that, um, this, this chief exec like, you know, he, he does, he does do the conversations and go out and do the meetings sometimes. And he goes down really well, but he doesn't do them very often. Hmm. And, and, you know, if you go and speak to the likes of, um, the Andy Amblers and Paul Barves of this world, they'll, they'll go and do that. And so when you've got a chief executive with a good instinct, you want to encourage it. So really, you know, all the other stuff, yeah, it's all stuff I want to get out there and practice, but it's about speaking to people and getting to understand what the, what the good stuff is, because you'll find it. There's not enough of it. There needs to be more of it, but it's there if you go and look for it. Hmm. Okay. Lovely. Where can people uh, find you on Twitter and where can they find the Little Book of Insights? Little Book of Fan Insights. Well, so that's um, faninsights.co.uk um, and you'll see it in big capital letters on the website, free Little Book of Fan Insights. Uh, and then on Twitter is um, faninsightsco.uk. Um, you can find me on there. I'm also on LinkedIn. I've got, got some presence on LinkedIn. I've got presence on various other social networks facebook etc so good. yeah look look me up um, and um and if anyone ever wants to have a chat um drop me an email and when does your podcast yeah, come out when does my podcast start yeah that's a good question i'm just finishing <laughs> i'm just finishing it off now <laughs> okay what will it be called and, um, how, how, yeah. how will people find that 
Well, go via the Planning Insights website again. Okay. I'll make sure there's stuff yeah, up there. on there about it. But it's just going to be brief. It's just me. I get, you know, I love writing. I love, I like, I like, I kind of like broadcasting in, in all sorts of formats. But um, I used to do quite a lot of radio and I haven't done for, for a while. And I thought, well, it's just me really putting across an opinion which people seem to like. Um, so it'll be 10 or 15 minutes every couple of weeks at the moment. And I might try and start speaking to some people about what they do and the, the things that they that they think should be done better and try and also introduce some stuff from outside football and not mm, even sport, good, actually. Good. Yeah. Just talk about some of the good stuff out there because there's a lot that football needs to start learning from other places yeah. And, yeah. and not just how to sell better, but actually how to manage these relationships because there's, there's a lot of good stuff out there and I think it'd be nice if I can help to bring some of that to people. Mm, good. Absolutely. Okay, thank Look you so much you. for joining us, Kevin. We really appreciate nice. it. Thank you. Yeah. No, I appreciate the platform. Nice to chat thank to you. you. All right, all the best. So, yeah, it was great to hear from Kevin there. Great for him to join us on the podcast. Um, we had a few little technical issues earlier on in the in the interview there, but hopefully we'll, we'll, we'll iron that out in the edit and uh, it'll, be, it'll be as seamless as ever. Yes, highly um, polished. That's right. Uh, also really appreciative of, of Kevin giving our, our membership um, options a, a good plug there yeah. in the podcast. It sounded almost natural as yeah. part, part of the conversation when he, when he said that there. Um, we managed to derail that by giving the giving the, the, the website address. Um, if you didn't catch it in the middle of the podcast, it's www.patreon.com Supporters Direct Scotland, um, where you can join uh, and support their, our organisation and the work that we do um, on a page like page you like basis. Uh, it gets you free entry into into our events, um, and also entitles you to to you know be part of the democracy of Supporters Direct Scotland, uh, and stand for election to our board if you so wish. Yeah, absolutely. Any any membership, uh, it's a pay what you want. So it's completely up to you how you want to be involved, how much you want to contribute. But it, it, it actually listening to Kevin there really inspired me. You know that you'll be helping support the supporters movement in many respects by doing so, and helps us do the kind of research that we do in terms of. Fan, fan insights in some yeah. respects in terms of the surveys yeah. that we do on fans use across a range of issues so you'll be supporting the kind of increase of knowledge of, of really what fans are thinking of issues in the game that's right I mean there's a, a sort of a similarity with what Kevin does and in terms of him putting the, the little book of fan insights out there free of charge uh, it's the same philosophy that we have with without, with all the work that we do uh, so we try and publish it out there uh, and you know reduce the barriers to people being able to, to benefit from that work so we keep all of that work free um, but it's not it's not free to produce. No, no. Uh, and that's it for this week. Thank you so much for, for listening to it, and uh, hopefully you can join us again next week. Yeah, I'll speak to you next week. Behind the Goals is a Supporters Direct Scotland podcast. You can get in touch with the show by emailing behindthegoals at hotmail.com or you can also tweet the show at SupDirectScott. That's S-U-P-P Direct Scott.